All right, well, it's great to welcome everyone today who is joining us through our online campus. I want to welcome all of my Mount Pleasant family, all of my Impact Campus family friends, especially Impact Fairfax and Impact Bethany. Uh, so glad that uh, you all are able to join us, that I'm able to share with you today in our teaching time here in this service. If you have a Bible with you, I want you to go ahead and open it to Luke chapter 12 as we continue our November stewardship series called Foolproof. Now, the tagline for that series would be how to handle money in uncertain times. We're going to continue this weekend with a message called a fool and his money. If you were with us last week, you know we began by looking at several verses from the book of Proverbs uh, to talk about uh, how to make sure that we don't live our lives like a financial fool. And I got to be honest with you and tell you that I felt a little bit of anxiety this week while I was preparing this message because of my constant use of the word fool. I mean, the first two messages in the series are called How to Be a Financial Fool and A Fool and His Money. The word fool is a pretty strong word, and I can see how some could maybe take offense at that word, at the use of that word. Uh, Some of you might even remember from our lengthy study of the Gospel of Matthew that we were involved in not long ago called Let's Talk About Jesus. Uh, There was a time as we were studying through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, we encountered this passage from Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. This is Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, and here it is, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Now, those are some pretty strong words. And so, as I mentioned, I I felt a little bit of anxiety this week about how often I'm using this word fool. So, Let me just take a minute by way of introduction here and talk to you about the Bible and the use of the word fool. The Bible actually uses the word fool a lot, especially in the book of Proverbs. We talked about that last week. In fact, last week I told you that one of the things that I loved about the book of Proverbs is the clear distinction that you're given over and over and over again between uh, what a wise man looks like and what a foolish man looks like, the distinction between someone who is wise and someone who is a fool. Let me just remind you of that by giving you a partial list of uh, some of the characteristics of a fool found in the book of Proverbs. Uh, a fool hates knowledge, Proverbs one twenty two. A fool is involved in sexual immorality, Proverbs 6.32. A fool finds pleasure in evil conduct. Proverbs 10.23, a fool is quick-tempered, Proverbs 12.16, a fool gets in trouble with his words, Proverbs 14.3, a fool is deceitful, Proverbs 14.8, and honestly, if you're familiar with the the book of Proverbs, you know that you could go on and on and on. The two most common words in the Hebrew language for fool, and remember the Old Testament was originally written in the Hebrew language, the two most common words in the Hebrew language for fool are both used multiple times in the book of Proverbs. And basically, those two words mean someone who despises wisdom and someone who is simple, stupid, and arrogant. Now, in contrast to that, the word that Jesus uses for fool in that Matthew 5 passage I read just a moment ago is the Greek word. Remember, the New Testament was originally written in the Greek language, is the Greek word 
moros, which basically means worthless or unredeemable. There's a difference, and here's what I want to point out today, so stay with me. There's a difference between calling someone a fool in the sense that they are acting foolishly or making foolish choices, which is what we see throughout the book of Proverbs. There's a difference between that and calling someone a fool the way Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 5. Calling someone a fool because they're acting foolishly or making foolish choices is identifying their mistakes. I mean, you could even say that that can be done in an attempt to try to help someone realize that they're going the wrong way in their life. Calling someone a fool from a heart of contempt, which again is what Jesus talks about in Matthew 5, is equal to saying that person is worthless or unredeemable, and that's never correct. That's never true. No one is ever worthless or unredeemable in the eyes of God. And so I really hope that no one is offended by my use of the word fool or foolish. I'm simply describing someone who lacks judgment and can be easily tricked or deceived into doing something or choosing something that is, well, honestly, there's no other word for it, stupid. That would be my definition of a fool. While I was studying for this message, I ran across the story of a man named Terry Cole, who is the world champion of, wait for it, glass eating. You heard me correctly. He is the world champion of glass eating. I'm not making this up. When asked what it's like to eat glass, this was his reply. Awful. Really awful. Shocking, I know. When asked if it hurt, he says, not really. It doesn't cut you because you grind it very thoroughly with your teeth. As long as you grind it up long enough, you're all right. I don't know about you, but I wonder how long it took to come to that conclusion. When asked, how does it make you feel to be a world champion? His response was, I am very proud of what I have achieved. Now listen, I can't speak for you. I would never try to speak for you, and I'm not trying to be overly harsh or or overly critical of someone that I don't know who is probably a really good guy, but I'm going to be honest and tell you today that that sounds to me like the very definition of a fool. Because again, here's my definition of a fool, someone who lacks judgment and can be easily tricked or deceived into doing something or choosing something that is stupid. And so using the word fool or foolish in a message series about handling money is really pretty appropriate because money can cause you to do some really foolish and some really stupid things. We see that in this parable that Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 12. It's Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. So if you've got your Bible open there, I want you to go ahead and follow along with me as I read. As always, I'm reading from my 1984 edition of the New International Version Bible. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. 
And then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be. And this is, these are the final words of Jesus. This is his commentary on the parable. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. Well, let's spend a few minutes talking about this parable, this story. If you go back and you read the very first part of Luke chapter 12, you get a picture of the setting or the context uh, for this story, this parable. Jesus is surrounded by what Luke describes as a crowd of many thousands, many thousands of people. In fact, Luke says that there were so many people surrounding Jesus that they were literally trampling one another. And in that setting, Jesus begins to do some teaching, first of all, with the disciples, but then the crowd got involved when a man steps forward and says in Luke 12:13 we just read this teacher tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me and that opens the door to what we call the parable of the rich fool now i've taught on this parable multiple times over the many many years that i've been here at mount pleasant and there's a lot of different things that you can say about this parable but in this setting today when i read this parable there are three things that really stand out to me if you're someone who likes to take notes then write this first thing down next to number 1 the first thing that stands out to me is what i would just simply call a financial success story i mean let's just cut to the chase by any standard The man in this story, the man in Jesus' parable, is a man who has it made. I don't know anyone who wouldn't want to be in a similar situation when all of a sudden you've got more wealth than you've ever imagined, so much so that you're able to say to yourself, just like he was in verse 19, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. That's the way it reads again in my NIV Bible. In the message, which is a paraphrase, a modern-day paraphrase in the New Testament. This is how Luke chapter 12 and verse 19 reads. It says, you've got it made and can now retire. Take it easy, have the time of your life. That's the American dream, right? The only thing this guy is worried about is how he's going to be able to store all that he has. And again, I don't know anyone who wouldn't want to be in the same situation. I don't know anyone who wouldn't want to go to work one day and receive a payday larger than anything he had ever received before, larger than anything he had ever imagined, large enough to provide his family with instant financial security for the rest of their lives. That's what this man received. And so from all outward appearances, it was the ultimate financial success story. But that's not the end of the story. If you like to take notes, write down next to number two, the second thing that stands out to me. And I'm just going to simply call this a false sense of security. When this rich man received this crop, this once-in-a-lifetime crop, he was saying to himself, this is Luke chapter 12 and verse 19, again, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, drink and be merry. But he wasn't the only one talking. He wasn't the only one speaking. 
because at the same time, God was saying something to him. And what God was saying is recorded in verse 20. God says, you fool. And there's an exclamation point behind the word fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Now, here's the critical question that has to be asked. Why was God so harsh with this man? Why, on what would have surely been considered the best day of his life, the single best day of his life, of this man's life, why, on that day, did God demand his life? Well, the simple answer is found in verse 21, where Jesus says, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. But that's just a simple answer. And the truth is, there's more to it than that. It would be easy to conclude that the sole reason why God said, this very night your life will be demanded from you, was because this man wasn't rich toward God in the sense that when he had received so much from God, he never even gave a single thought to give anything back to God. He never thought about being generous. There's no record of that in Jesus' story at all. But there's more to it than that. If you've got your Bibles open there still to Luke chapter 12, I want you to go back with me and look specifically at verses 17 through 19. When this man, again, was blessed with this once-in-a-lifetime crop that gave him financial security for the rest of his life, he thought to himself, this is verse 17, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then in verses 18 and 19, he comes to this conclusion. This is what I'll do. I'll tear down, I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Let me give you a little insight into the text, in particular those three verses that you don't see simply by reading them in the English version of your Bible. The word Jesus uses, the Greek word Jesus uses, when this man refers to himself in verse 19, I'm talking about when he refers to himself in verse 19 with the words myself and you, he says, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. The word Jesus uses there for myself and you is a very specific word in the Greek language. Again, the original language of the New Testament. I don't want you to miss this. It's the word suke. Suke. And literally translated, it means soul. It's a word that literally refers to the spiritual part of your life. It literally refers to the part of your life that is created in the image of God. It refers to the part of your life that was designed by God for eternity, the soul. And so, when you understand that, you go back to verse 19 and you read it like this. This is the literal translation. The man says this to himself. I'll say to my soul, the spiritual part of my life, the 
part of my life created in the image of God, the part of my life that's designed for eternity, I will say to my soul, soul, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And friends, here's the significance of understanding that. The significance is it reveals the problem wasn't that this man was not aware of the spiritual side or the spiritual reality of his life, the eternal side of his life, the eternal reality of his life, the fact that his life, there's a part of his life that was literally created in the image of God. That's clear from Jesus' use of the word suke when this man was talking to himself. I'll say to my soul, soul, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. The problem was that even though he was aware of that, he made the choice, the conscious choice to ignore the spiritual side of his life, the side of his life that was created in the image of God, the side of his life that was eternal, and live only for himself. And in the end, because of that, God called him a fool, and he paid a high price for his choice. You know, I told you in the introduction to our message today that I was feeling a little anxiety this week when I was writing this sermon because of my constant use of the word fool and the fact that I didn't want that to come across as being offensive to anyone. And so I, I literally spent some time this week studying what the Bible says about a fool. And when I was doing that, I came to the conclusion that while the Bible spends a lot of time describing what a fool looks like in the sense of talking about foolish choices and foolish decisions, and those things are found primarily in the book of Proverbs, and honestly, many of the things that we read there, many of the things we read about foolish choices in the book of Proverbs are things that all of us can be guilty of at different times in our lives. The Bible also, in different places, comes right out and tells us that there are some people who are just plain fools period. It's not just about a foolish choice or a foolish action with regard to your words or the people you spend time with or your temper or anything like that. There are just some people who are fools, period. Let me give you some examples. There were three in particular that stood out to me during my time of study. Number one, there's the person who says that God doesn't exist Psalm 14 and verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And I don't really think that requires a lot of explanation. Number two, there's the person who mocks the consequences of sin. In Proverbs 14 and verse 9, this is what we read. Fools mock at making amends for sin but goodwill is found among the upright. Maybe that becomes a little bit more clear. The meaning becomes a little bit more clear if I read it from the New Living Translation. In the New Living Translation, Proverbs 14.9 reads like this, Fools make fun of guilt, but the godly acknowledge it and seek reconciliation. 
In other words, the proverb writer is telling us that a fool thinks that there are no consequences for the choices that we make in life. The third person that really stood out to me, who I think is described in the Bible as just being a fool, period, is the person who is not prepared to die. And for that, we go back to the words of our text in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 and verse 20 says, and remember, this is when the rich man who had received this once-in-a-lifetime crop that gave him financial security for the rest of his life decided that all he would do was tear down the smaller barns that he had now, build bigger barns so that he could store it all for himself and take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. As a result of that, in Luke chapter 12 and verse 20, Jesus said this was God's response, but God said, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you, then who will get what you have prepared for yourself. You know, our text is called the parable of the rich fool because while this man in Jesus' story understood that there was a spiritual and eternal side of life, he chose to ignore it and live for himself. And friends, what that means is he wasn't prepared to die. He wasn't prepared for eternity because all he was focused on was the here and now. And listen, because this is so important. If he had at some point in his life embraced the spiritual side of his life, the side of his life that was created in the image of God, the eternal side of his life, which is to say if he had made a relationship, a personal relationship with God, a priority in his life, the priority in his life, then when he had received that once-in-a-lifetime crop, he would have responded by being generous. He would have responded would have responded by being rich toward God because, quite frankly, that is the will of God for all of us. That's how God created us to live. God did not create us to be selfish. He created us to be generous. He didn't create us to keep. He created, he created us to give because God, because God knows that generous living is far better than selfish living. And let me tell you why that's true, why generous living is far better than selfish living. Because we're never, ever going to lose anything by being generous. In fact, the Bible tells us just the opposite happens. One verse that we talked about in last week's message related to generosity was Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 24, where the proverb writer says, one man gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. Now think about that with me. I'm telling you that you never lose anything by being generous, and God is affirming that by saying one man gives freely, yet gains even more. In contrast, he says another withholds unduly, and as a result, he comes to poverty. You will never lose anything by being generous. And when you live in a relationship with God, when that is the priority of your life, because you understand that there's a part of you that's created for eternity, your soul, the essence of who you are, the part of you that's created in the image of God, when you understand that and as a result you pursue 
a relationship with God, that is the priority of your life, then you're going to be a generous person because you'll understand that is the will of God for your life. And so there was so much more to this man and his being called a fool by God. It was so much more than just the fact that he chose not to be generous in his time of blessing. That was his plan. And it was a disaster. So write down next to number three, a far better plan. That's the third thing that stands out to me in our text. And I want us to read the words. Look back in your Bible one more time to Luke chapter 12 and verse 31. And let's read those words one last time. This again is Jesus' final words. This is his commentary on the parable that he just told. He says, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. The fact that this man received this incredible blessing of this once-in-a-lifetime crop that gave him financial security but chose to be selfish in the way he handled it rather than generous because all he was thinking about was himself and the physical here and now with no thought at all of eternity. Now, it would be easy for me to read that verse. Again, Jesus said, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God, and just close out the message by saying, are you living a life that is rich toward God? I could ask that, and I could really emphasize the need for generosity in all of our lives. I mean, that would be hard for me to do because I believe in that. I believe in the need for generosity. I could tell you story after story of the blessing that God has brought into my life as a result of embracing a life of generosity. But what I really feel compelled to do as we end this message is ask you this question. Are you prepared to die? I mean, let me get even more specific. Do you know for sure that if you died today, you would go to heaven? That's the real question that's at stake here. Because again, living a life that is rich toward God is the natural result of living a life in fellowship with God. And so is that the reality of your life today? Do you know for sure that if you died today, you would go to heaven? That's really the first of what is often called two diagnostic questions that everyone should answer, two spiritually diagnostic questions that everyone should be able to answer. I have asked these questions to literally thousands of people over the last 40-plus years. The first one is, again, do you know for sure that if you died today, you'd go to heaven? I know that's not something anyone wants to think about, but this is an important question to be able to answer. Do you know for sure that if you died today, you'd go to heaven? And then the second question is like a follow-up question, and it goes like this. If you did die today, and you found yourself standing before God, and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Now, most of the time over the years when I've asked people those questions and I say, do you know for sure that if you die today, you go to heaven? Most people will 
really respond by saying, well, I don't know, or I think so, or I hope so, something like that. And then when I ask the follow-up question, if you did die today and you found yourself standing before God and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Most people will respond by saying, in the end, well, hopefully because I've been good enough. But there's a problem with that answer. The problem with that answer is that no one will ever be good enough to go to heaven because no one will ever be good enough to earn or deserve a personal relationship with God. That only comes as a result of what the Bible calls God's grace. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, not by our effort, not, be, not by something we've done to earn it or deserve it, not by works, so that no one can boast. No one's good enough or will ever be good enough on their own to earn heaven. Let's suppose that you were a person who was so good that you only sinned three times a day. Three times a day, friends. Three times a day. As I'm standing here recording this message, I can see the clock at the back of the worship center, and it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I guarantee you I have sinned at least three times today. I sin three times a day every time I get in my car and drive any length of distance because I am an incredibly impatient driver. But let's say you only sin three times a day. That'd be 21 sins in the course of a week. That would be 1,092 sins in the course of a year. And if you did that for, let's just say, 50 years, that would be 54,600 sins over the course of 50 years. Now, listen to me. No one could stand before a judge, and the Bible describes God or talks about God often as a judge. No one could stand before any kind of judge with over 50,000 offenses against them and expect anything but the maximum punishment that the law allowed. But you were such a good person that you only sinned three times a day. See, oftentimes we make the mistake of thinking, well, you know, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm better than most people. I'm certainly better than that person. And we justify it like that. But that's not how it works. The only way to be saved, the only way to know for sure that when you die, you're going to go to heaven is by understanding and receiving the grace of God into your life. And here's what that grace looks like. I'll describe it to you like this. I've done this before. It won't be new to many of you. I used to do this a lot in churches where I would talk to children about what they needed to know and understand in order to make a commitment to be a Christian, to live a, in a right relationship with God. I would, I would just stick out my left hand and I would say, let's just imagine that my hand re represents my life. This is me. And I would take my Bible and say, let's just imagine that my Bible is a record book of every single sin I've ever committed in my life. They're all recorded. From the time I was old enough to be held accountable for my sin, to understand the difference between right and wrong and be held accountable for my sin, every sin I ever committed is recorded in this Bible. It would take much, a much bigger book than this for me. But let's just say that this is a record book of my sin. If you place that on top of my life, you don't even see me any longer. All you see is the reality of my sin. I'm completely covered by the reality of my sin. Let's say my right hand now represents God. 
and he's up in heaven. And more than anything else, God wants a relationship with me. We were all created to live in a relationship with God. We were created to be loved by God and to love God. That's the great purpose for our lives. And yet, even though God loves me with an everlasting love, we're separated by the reality of my sin because the truth is an absolutely perfect and holy God cannot live in fellowship with an imperfect and unholy man. And so we've got a problem. Our sin separates us from God. But God, because of his love, because of his mercy, because of his grace, didn't want it to be that way. And so he did something about that sin for us. He came into the world in the person of Jesus Christ And he died on the cross in our place to be punished for our sin. And so when Jesus died on the cross, God took all of that sin that covers up and defines our lives and placed it on Christ and from heaven punished him in our place for our sin so that now because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, our sin can be forgiven. Not because of anything that we have done or could ever do, but because of what Jesus did on the cross, our sin can be forgiven so that nothing stands between us and God. That's grace. That's the grace of God illustrated in as clear a way as I can understand how. And so what's our response to the grace of God? How do we receive it into our lives? Well, I like the fact that someone once said it's as simple as the ABCs. If you think about it like the ABCs, then this is how it begins. With the letter A, you admit that you're a sinner. That's where it begins. You admit that you're a sinner. Now, that might not be something that's difficult for you or me, but some people have a hard time with that because we don't often like to define our lives in negative terms, but that's the reality of our lives. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, Paul writes and says, For all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. A little bit earlier in that same chapter, Romans chapter 3, I believe it's, verse, it's either verse 10 or 11. He says, there is none righteous, no, not one, not even you, not even me, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we admit, we begin by admitting we're sinners, admitting that we are in need. Then you move on to the letter B. And that stands for this, believe in Jesus. And when we talk about believing in Jesus, we're not talking about just mere intellectual assent, not just head knowledge. We're talking about completely trusting and surrendering to who Jesus is and what Jesus came in the world to do, what he accomplished when he died for your sin on the cross and when he rose from the dead and conquered death and all that that means for you. It's surrendering and trusting your life to Jesus. Believing is not just an intellectual activity. It happens in the heart. Then you move on to the letter C, and you confess that belief in Jesus. One day Jesus said, this is recorded in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 32, he said, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. I love the words Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 when he said, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I think this confession is a powerful part of the salvation experience. 
Then you move on to the letter D. And you demonstrate the reality of your faith, not just through that confession, but through genuine, what the Bible calls genuine repentance. And the simplest way in this setting to describe what repentance is, is it's a word that really means to turn. That's the way I learned it when I was a little boy. When I was a little boy going to church, I, w- I was taught that if I, if I were to repent, it means if I'm walking down the road this way, I stop and I turn around and I walk the other way. And so in simplest terms, what repentance means is that we come to a place in our lives where because we admit we're a sinner, because we believe in Jesus, because we confess that belief in Jesus, we make the commitment for the rest of our lives to turn away from sin and turn to God. To turn away from sin and turn to God. We've changed our mind about how we want to live our life. And we turn away from sin and we turn to God. And then there's the letter E. And this is something that I love, but something that a lot of people have a little bit of a struggle with. But we make the commitment to express that belief. We've admitted that we're a sinner. We believed in Jesus, confessed that belief. We've made the commitment to turn away from sin and turn to God. And now we obey the command of the Scripture to express that belief through baptism. Through baptism. Not because there's some kind of a ceremony that saves us, but because the Bible tells us that we express our faith through baptism. And baptism should be one of the most precious experiences in your life as a believer. I think about Paul's words in Romans chapter 6 when he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin, so how can we live in it any longer? And then he says, or don't you know that all of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? You were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, you too may live a new life. And so whenever someone is baptized, I'm pointing back to the baptistry here at church, what we see is this living, breathing illustration of somebody being united with Jesus in his death and his burial and his resurrection, becoming new. And that should be one of the most precious experiences of your life. And so let me just ask you the question again. Are you prepared to die? Do you know for sure that if you died today, you'd go to heaven? See, the rich fool in our story had a much bigger problem than a lack of generosity. He had weighed the reality of life, physical life and eternal life, and chose to reject the eternal part of life and focus just on the physical. And that's why Jesus, or that's why God rather said that he was a fool and demanded his life. His lack of generosity was a part of it. That's an important part of the story. Obviously, that's a big part of the story. But it's a big part of the story in that if his life was right with God, then generosity would have been the natural result of what he received, the blessing he received. It would have been the natural next step because that's the will of God for all of us. God's will is for us to be generous. God's will is not for us to keep. It is for us to give because God teaches us that we, knew we never lose anything through giving. That was a mistake this man made, but it was a result of a bigger mistake, not making sure that he chose 
the Lord first above everything else. So are you prepared to die? Do you know for sure that if you died today, you would go to heaven? If you died today and you found yourself standing before God and he said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Listen to me close. If you have any doubts about that at all today, then don't live another moment with those doubts. Reach out right now to the online pastor, to the online host. Reach out right now to our church here at Mount Pleasant Christian Church or to Impact Fairfax or to Impact Bethany or Impact Old Southside. Reach out to someone now who can guide you and counsel you with what you need to do to make sure today that your life is right with God so that you don't make the same mistake as the rich fool in Jesus' parable. I want you to pray with me. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the chance to share from your word with folks today who are joining us online. And we're in a sermon series about stewardship, how we handle money, and the part of that is generosity. And generosity is important because you created us to be generous. We're told in the scriptures that we need to be imitators of you and you are a generous God. Generosity blesses our lives because we never lose anything by being generous. In fact, just the opposite happens. We gain even more. And all of that is so very important. But it's important because it is the natural overflow of a life that is right with you, a life that is surrendered to you, a life that is committed to you first. And so, if there's any one at all listening to me today who does not know for sure that their life is right with you, who does not know for sure that when they die, they're going to go to heaven, that you would not leave their heart alone until they reach out to someone for counsel and direction and help. And I pray that there would be those who would surrender to you right now today. And I pray for that in Jesus' name, amen.